Hey everyone, David Kern here. Welcome to Close Reads. Before we get into the show today with our special guests, Karen Swallow Pryor and Joshua Gibbs, who are joining Heidi White and I for our discussion of Frankenstein, I wanted to remind you about how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, search for Close Reads in that search bar, and you can join the conversation over on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. And over on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Podcasts. We also have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And we have bonus episodes and some sweet show swag over at patreon.com slash close reads, where we are currently discussing crime and punishment a little bit at a time. The Close Reads audience is the greatest audience in the podcast world, and we're thankful you've taken the time to, to uh, be a part of it. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And with that, here is today's episode. <music> Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Karen Swallow Pryor, Joshua Gibbs, and Heidi White. Welcome back to the show, y'all. Karen, how's it going? I'll just go through the list so you don't all have to answer at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It's going great. I feel like I'm in the middle of a normal summer right now, as such as it is. It's um, getting hot and sultry and just a lot of reading and swimming, so it's good. Are you still, I see all your Instagram posts of your jogging routes. Are you still jogging in this heat or do you um, I, I, take that inside? <laughs> yeah, no, I do do as long as I can get it in early enough. So mm. yeah, today that mm. didn't work out. <laughs> Josh, what about you? What are you up to right now? Just working on my next book, which is uh, probably just a couple of weeks away from being done. Those are uh, big weeks right there. Do you feel, are you stressed about it? Do you feel the pressure? No, I, I'm, I'm relieved because of, I've finally hit the home stretch and I can see how the whole thing is going to going to close out. And, um, so I'm over the onerous part of it and I'm into the enjoyable part of it. I've, um, completed the most difficult part of the argument. So, Hmm. well, very much looking forward to, to reading that. And Heidi, what about you? What are you up to? Well, I'm not jogging or writing a book, but I am doing a lot of weeding in my garden and I'm doing a lot of reading. And this week, we're getting a basketball court at our house. So that's pretty exciting. An indoor basketball court in the summer would be a smart idea, though. Yeah, big half court. My, I have a 14-year-old son. He needs something to do. He can't get a job this summer um, with everything going on. And we've been talking about this for years. So we thought this, this is a good time. Nice. Okay, well, let's dive in. We're discussing Frankenstein. We're going to discuss chapters three through seven. Um, some of you, we were... A little confused as we were starting the show about which, whether it's the end of volume one or the middle of volume one, just go with the chapters if you're confused. That seems to be the, the consensus way to, or the best way to approach it. Um, so we're going to discuss the, the section here with uh, what we learn about the murder, what we learn about the monster, then we learn about the murder, and then we experience the trial of Justine. So that's the, the one sentence summary of what happens in this chapter. But before we get in too deep into the sort of the facts, the events of this section, I wanted to bring up something that was asked over on the Facebook page because in the last episode, we discussed the idea of the unreliable narrator a little bit. And we talked about how that shows up in this book. And somebody asked a question that I thought was worth at least bringing up. Uh, Maybe there's some dissonance for some readers that we can resolve. And the question is, how much should we, how much should we really worry about the unreliable narrator? You know, she's this particular person who said that, you know, when you bring up unreliable narrators with students, in her case, she found that sometimes that made them uh, instinctively want to disregard the book or not trust it. So how do you, so what's the degree to which you think we should actively be trying to, you know, seek out where the, where the narrator is being unreliable and how much should we 
let it worry us as we're reading it. Uh, Karen, how would you approach that? Um, again, I think maybe the different teaching experiences will impact that based on the experience, the reading experience of students. But still, do you? How do you approach that? Do you think that's something that needs to be constantly in front, front and center? Well, you know, I haven't because I don't teach in the um, area of modernism very much, which is a little bit later than this. I think that's when the unreliable narrator really developed. So in some ways, I think it's, it's, it is anachronistic to look back and, and call this narrator unreliable. I mean, it's not that the narrator is not unreliable, um, but that wasn't a conscious or intentional thing at this time hmm. in terms of like... Na- narrative um approaches um so i just i i think um it's not something that i would get really caught up in until we're looking at a novel where the the author is is deliberately trying to develop an unreliable narrator um that doesn't mean these narrators aren't um inconsistent and aren't psychologically revealing and flawed and all of those things um, but it was a good question. I saw that and it was a good question, especially when, when teaching high school students, I can imagine how they can really get caught up in that. So I'd love to, I don't know, I guess I'd love to hear what David has to say about it. Well, yeah, Josh, you, I mean, um, Josh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh, you teach high schoolers. So what's your take on that? That's right. So, um, I don't have, uh, I don't have a whole lot of interest in postmodern reading strategies. And I, I do think that a few postmodern hermeneutics can be helpful from time to time. But as I mentioned in the last show, I do think um, nearly every postmodern reading strategy gets out of hand rather quickly. And once you introduce the concept of an unreliable narrator, the indiscriminate reader just treats it like a like a new hammer and has to, you know, hit everything with it. It's uh, <laughs> so like every line you have to stop and that's, test the... That's test right. The rest and so, it. Yeah, I would understand someone's hesitance to introduce it. The, maybe the problem, as Karen suggests, is really more the expression "unreliable narrator," and it would be better uh, simply to point out that Victor lies a few times in the course of the book, uh, and that there are a number of places where, um, because Mary Shelley is a reliable author, uh, her characters are liars because human beings are liars, and and no character in a book is above lying. So. Um, hmm. I, I suppose before we get into the actual discussion of the book, I should say, now reading the, the 1818 edition of the book, I'll be honest, I don't know that I've ever read this before. Uh, my familiarity with the, with the 1831 edition is so deep that paragraph after paragraph seemed really jarring to me in the 1818 edition. Hmm. And I would say when we get into the you know, nitty gritty of, of the you know, pages and paragraphs, I, I could point out a few places, but it seems to me between 1818 and 1831, Mary Shelley intentionally made Victor more duplicitous and more self-contradictory. And that some of the passages in the book that I think are most indicative of his um, compromised motives in telling his story have been added later hmm. and, are, and are not present in the, in the first edition. And it seems as though as Mary got older, she simply became much more adept uh, at, at understanding the way that people lie mm. to themselves and to others. Hmm. Well, Heidi, you're nodding. You were nodding multiple times while he was talking. So do you want to, do you want to jump in before I ask a follow-up question? I do. Yeah. I, 
I think, you know, as, as Karen wisely points out, unreliable narrator is a literary term uh, and it is specific to a certain time. Um, and it has become, in a sense, kind of bogarted or taken over by postmodern reading strategies, as Josh points out. But in, it, in another sense, and because I tend to read very psychologically because of my psychological training, uh, in another sense, we are all, each of us, as Josh says, unreliable narrators of our own lives. We lie to ourselves. We lie to others. Uh, we, we don't know ourselves. We don't know the world we live in. And uh, that is clearly threaded through Frankenstein. So I think it's a mistake to ever read Victor Frankenstein on his own uh, by what he claims for himself. You have to read it to a certain extent, knowing that he's not reliable. Um, and, and that is how to read this book. But you don't have to put jargon on it. You can ask certain questions, as Josh said. You can ask questions that lead you to get there. You know, things like, do you really think that how he, his reason, his stated reason for not claiming responsibility and, jo and Justine's trial are really what he th is claiming that they are? Is there something else there, right? So you're getting to the heart of those things. Um, you should probably phrase that question more professionally than I did when I just said it off the top of my head. But at the same time, it's those kinds of things are, are the only way to read this book. You don't get it if you're taking his valuation straightforwardly. Um, but I don't think we need to put a lot of literary analysis on there. It's kind of right there if you're reading carefully. Yeah. And again, to go back to something we talked about last week, the form, um, you know, the frame mm -hmm. narrative, that that questioning of each narrator, not just Frankenstein, but all of the narrators we have is built into the way Shelley writes the novel, right? She Because she has this, is, you know, this is, it, it's like a game of telephone, is that what, or gossip, I guess, depending, you know, I don't know, it's called both things, but that one where you sit in the circle and tell, tell, pass the story along and by the time you get to it, it's changed. I mean, th that's kind of what's happening here is Shelley is, is putting all, adding all these layers to the story. We're getting the story about the story about the story, you know, from these different narrators. So I think that's what's much more interesting to me than, than the reliability of any particular narrator within this onion that we're, you know, peeling away. I was thinking while I was reading, um, I was trying to figure out, do I trust... Do I not trust Frankenstein or do I not trust um, the guy who's writing the letters to his sisters that's then retelling the story? Because you can imagine him saying, you know, here and there, just sort of almost unconsciously or subconsciously tweaking a little detail that was passed along by Frankenstein to make the story seem more interesting to his sister. So, you know, the, I, kept, I kept kind of trying to figure out, you know, I think... It, almost like there's a puzzle like trying to figure out the clues or more like a maybe not a puzzle but more like a um like a mystery I kept trying to read like a detective in a way and i found myself then questioning whether i should be doing that <laughs> so uh you know kind of um i kind of was realizing things about myself maybe while i was doing that but mm -hmm. i want to go back to something josh said about the 1818 versus the 1831 editions because th this has me really curious at the risk of you know creating chaos in Karen's, you know, summer as she works on her annotated edition with the 1818 edition. Do you think then the 1831 edition, Josh, is is actually a better book than the 1818 edition, given what you were saying about her uh, perhaps 
growing experience with how people lie to themselves and also her, you know, growing literary uh, capabilities? I want to say yes immediately to that, but I haven't finished. I need a fresh read of the 1818 edition. So I think we should come back to that question at the you end know, on the last show. Um, it, it would be just too hasty to make that judgment now. Although I will say that at this point in the book, a lot of my favorite talking points on the book seem to have been added in the 1831 edition. And there's still plenty to talk about in the 1818 edition. But when I, I think back to all the lectures that I often give and comments that I make on the book and places that I try to lead discussions, um, reading the 1818 edition, I mean, it's like opening a drawer and reaching for something that's not there when I, hmm. when I read it. Hmm. Have you, Karen, have you felt the, I don't know what the, the dissonance of the felt, your, felt some chaos in reading. Yeah, definitely a little bit. I mean, like John, this is actually my first time reading the 1818 edition. I've always read and taught out of the 1831. And um, so, and, and that's partly why I wanted to, to use this version for this, mm-hmm. this conversation. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I, as I researched the, not just the, not, I didn't really research the differences between the versions, but the um, reasons for choosing one or the other. Um, yeah, I think what Josh said earlier is exactly right. Shelley looked at life differently, um, having lived experiences and lived a life that she no longer could fully embrace and kind of wove that into the story. But we get a different picture of of, of Shelley and her thinking um, with the 1818 edition. They, they are different books, in a sense, by different authors um, because she grew and developed, uh, and they're both worthy and fascinating in their own right. Hmm. Part of me is wonders how much of this podcast should be actually a comparison because it seems like there are um there are great passages that you both you know great elements great things about the 1831 that you both love how do you have you which have you read always the 1831 as well no i read this one first okay so well it just seems like there are these passages that you both return to that you love that that you feel open up the story um and so yeah yeah josh go ahead I would just make a comment um, to exhort listeners of the show who are reading along to not make a mistake that I made, which is to assume that the two editions are basically the same and that the only kind of person who can tell the difference is some kind of sophisticated uh, PhD. Uh, If you are listening to the show and have an 1831 edition um, and are assuming that they are basically the same on a number of accounts uh, and that, and that, um, you know, the guests on the show are just being nitpicky and <laughs> pretending that they can uh, discern fine differences between between the two. That is not the case. The two books are very different and uh, the points of emphasis are very different. And so for anybody out there uh, who has an 1831 edition, and I think this might this might be happening with some readers simply because everybody has the 1831 edition. And I imagine that a lot of people heard that we were doing the 1818 edition and were like, um, should I order another one? Is it really going to be worth it? Uh, I'll say, yeah. Uh, if you want to follow along with the, uh, with the discussion on the show, this is not, um, we're not mincing words or straining gnats. <laughs> the difference is pronounced. Well, sure. at the risk of being a little, you know, going a little inside baseball as a word, I'd love to hear, I mean, how much do you think we should spend time on these shows comparing the two volumes and turning to, you know, where we we're talking about a passage and then Josh or Karen, you turn to the passage in the 1831 edition and say, these are the differences and this is what it might mean about how we should read the 1818. And do you have, I mean, we could talk about this off the air, but I suspect our, <laughs> I suspect the audience would actually be interested. What do you, what do you think about that, Josh? I would say, um, 
I, I don't want to make it the focal point of the show because because everyone out there is probably just reading one edition. So, you know, I would say, as with last week, comparisons as necessary. Um, okay. uh, I, I don't know that it ought to dominate our conversations as necessary. I, yeah, I would love, in, you know, in the Facebook group, people can, if they're reading one or the other and have questions, that would be a great place to um, to bring up comments, observations, questions that we can address as they come along. Um, so that's one idea. Okay, let me ask this question, kind of get us into the text. How much of a genius do we think Frankenstein actually is? Victor Frankenstein. I thought you were going to say Mary Shelley, but we just probably because we talked about that last week. No, but, you know, word was in my head, I guess, this week while I was reading. So, Mine <laughs> so too. Mine too. And I read the whole book cover to cover this week um, with the question in my head. And I, I think this book is just absolutely brilliant. Like I, even reading it over again, the 1818, and I agree, I don't want to get hung up on comparison because there's new readers of this story that are listening to the podcast. And I, there's so many things in this book that are worth focusing on. Um, yeah, I think Victor Frankenstein was absolutely a genius um, to discover the secret of life. Yeah, I think he was. Um I think that that is not the centerpiece of his character, but I think that the question of what his genius kind of represents in his time is really important to the novel. Um, and the the hope, almost the conflation of magical thinking with scientific reasoning that happens in this really interesting and tumultuous time in history that he represents, um, also reflected in Walton and wanting to go up north to, to the North Pole and find what he, he really honestly thinks there might be some kind of magical Edenic paradise um, up there, even though that wasn't necessarily widespread at the time, it was still part of the public's way of thinking, is that we can overcome, mankind can find these principles that are almost like magic in their head. We're still kind of superstitious at the time, but attaching that to this, this, the scientific process. Um, and those, that conflation, I think, is really interesting in how Victor approaches his work. Hmm. So, you, but so, so wait, the, the, the answer to the question was, you do think he's a genius? Yes, I do said. think he's a genius. And I think that that's almost given in the story. But I'd be curious to hear uh, what Josh and Karen think about that. Josh, what do you think? The face you gave when I asked the question was uh, was interesting. So I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, you, you thought the question was dumb or... <laughs> uh, no, I don't think it's dumb. I think uh, <laughs> it, maybe I made a face because I'm thinking about Victor and and he certainly has a sort of um, uh, uncommon uh, scientific acumen. I, I have to say that every time I come to the passage in the book where he talks about... Um, going to charnel houses and rifling through dead corpses, all in an attempt to bring new life into the world. I want to say, you know that we had that problem solved a long time ago. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the old way of bringing new people into the world. Uh, many people even find it quite pleasant. And yet you've devised this absolutely disgusting, appalling way of bringing people into the world. 
it, it seems that his genius is committed to this absolutely risable project. Um, although, I mean, at the same time, the reason why he wants to bring new life into the world in a new way is so he doesn't have to share the glory of a child with someone else. And he wants to be sole custodian of the child uh, that no one else can claim credit for. Uh, although this new way of bringing life into the world also means he doesn't have to touch a woman. And, and he does seem to not like women very much. Uh, he has a kind of disgust of women. Um, so all, all that to say, is he a genius? Uh, maybe. But the things that he commits his genius to um, seem so backwards and silly to me. It seems that it's it's all not just not just wasted, but it's all um, squandered in a sort of uh, embarrassing way by the end of his life. Mm. Mm. Squandered genius is uh, that that seems like uh, it could be the uh, the biography of <laughs> the title of biography of uh, many people that Mary Shelley knew in her life. Karen, what what do you think? Do you think do you agree with that? Do you think he's a genius? I really like the question because I hadn't really thought of it that way before. And so I have mm-hmm. to um, think. <laughs> um, and um, I, I agree with so with what both Heidi and Josh have said. Um, and maybe just want to pull in a little wider context of, I, I, I think it's almost not, not even a question for, she, for Mary Shelley. Um, I, 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 I seldom, I seldom do biographical criticism. I hate biographical criticism, but Mary Shelley begs <laughs> for biographical criticism. I mean, here was a person born into a family of geniuses surrounded by geniuses her whole life. It, it is almost a given. I think one of you already said that kind of a given in the book. Um, and so, Yet her question, even in 1818, if we read a lot of Percy Shelley into what's going on here, her question is, given genius, what do you do with it? And um, and so we have in chapter three, in the beginning, through these paragraphs of this sort of driven nature of Frankenstein. Um, I mean, he seems really kind of stupid in that sense, like stupid in his original etymological sense like he's drunk on this knowledge and neglecting everything else and then i do want to point out and this is something heidi brought up he does have this genius he is driven um yet he also in you know a couple of pages in it's clear that there's also this enlightenment that happens the spark this light that comes from outside which of course is the romantic um conception of genius is that it's you know that they have this spark from the muse and so um he even talks you know in in uh, the paragraph that begins one of the phenomena wait that's a long paragraph at the end near the end he says um you know, he's examining all these parts in the churchyard. A sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries toward the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. I mean, I think we've got both things going on there. He is a genius, but there's also this light that breaks in that's sort of outside his control, he, the spark of... Uh, of light. Um, and then in the next paragraph, he even suggests some miracle might have produced it. So there is this mixture of 
human effort and genius, but also divine, mystical, supernatural revelation going on here. Is he trying to is he trying to harness or corral that that divine? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Well, I mean, not in a responsible way, but in the way right, that right, romant- right. romantic poets right. saw themselves as harnessing um, the inspiration, the divine inspiration. Is he is he trying to harness it? And then, so Josh talks about there's a sort of, I don't know if you put it this way exactly, but there's a sort of selfishness to his his approach. You know, he's he wants to have, he wants to be the sole custodian of the child, for example. He doesn't want to have to share credit. So it's, you know... I was I was asking about the genius thing because I kept thinking about how he seems like he is he he's got this ambition not just to create life but to be seen or at least to see himself as a genius and is is that concept um ultimately is that is that characteristic I suppose ultimately the 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 downfall, the, the the defining characteristic of the character, do you think? Because we talked about some other things last week, but I kept thinking about how well, I guess I'll just cut to the chase. I couldn't figure out if he thinks he's a genius and thus he says things that aren't true, or if he actually is a genius and thus says things that aren't true. <laughs> if that makes sense. It seems like there's a distinction to be made right. there. Like Because he's a genius, he says things both about himself and his work that that he doesn't he he's he thinks about things on a different plane you know how you meet people and they just don't think about things the same way other people do but they're really genius or very smart in a specific area is he like that or is he does he have this aspiration to be a genius and thus paints himself colors himself in a way Mm -hmm. that makes him seem more genius to his audience that's a good question and I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I see what you're getting at. I think that there's within Victor Frankenstein a a very profound divorce between the mind and the soul, and and that's explored uh, very deeply in this novel and, and in multiple ways. One is the creature that he creates. He has. He, it's like Jurassic Park. Like you didn't stop to think if you should. Like it's it's that he Just he has Jurassic no. Um, yeah, I mean Frankenstein is a story that's told over and over and over and over again in many many different contexts. The idea of the the mad genius taking this profound disorder within himself and creating something out of it. It's uh, that then there's this war between creature and created and and because the creature represents the darkness within the soul of the creator and, and so it's an inversion of a creation story it's uh, of our creation story the true creation story um so i mean jurassic park in many ways is just is just frankenstein in a different context um and 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 that's that's happened many times um but the as Josh pointed out, there's multiple levels to this kind of profound divorce of the mind and the soul. He can make something. He doesn't use it for good because he doesn't know himself. He doesn't know the dynamics of his family. He doesn't know how much he hates and and is profoundly ambivalent about women because of how many incestuous connections there are in the women in his life. Um, and and as Karen, as Karen pointed out, there's so many ways to read this book. It begs for a 
for that biographical um, kind of criticism of Mary Shelley's life. It also begs for feminist criticism. It also begs, I mean, big time for a Freudian <laughs> criticism. And you can find all of these things in reading about Frankenstein. Um, Probably just means they all just very... came up with their theories because they were reading Frankenstein. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, maybe so. Um, but this, the divided self of Victor Frankenstein and the blindness that there, that takes place between, he can't see his he can't see himself. He doesn't know himself or the circumstances of his life. And that, all of that kind of converges in his creation of the monster and, um, and begs the question then, who is the monster of the story? So I want to let Karen and, and Josh respond to what I was saying, but I kind of want to push back on something you're saying there about him not knowing himself because I think, you know, there's this, there's the passage in uh, chapter three where he talks about his own how he let himself get carried away. And so he seems to recognize weaknesses in himself or, or failures. You know, he seems to, he seems to, well, he says a human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind and never to allow passion or transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not benefiting the human mind. Um, and he, well, then he says, but I forget that I am moralizing the most interesting part of my tale, which is a great little aside there. But he seems to recognize his own flaws. So is it that he doesn't know himself? I guess that goes back to the question I was asking, though, the, dis that, the distinction mm -hmm. about... Uh, you know, that I was pointing out there. Um, so I guess I will let Josh and <laughs> Josh or Karen jump in. Josh, go ahead. Oh, I, I kind of want to hear from Karen first on this one. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll just point out, like in that passage that you just read from chapter three, it's also important to remember that it, the way the story is being narrated within <laughs> the stories, within the stories, within the stories is even this part, Victor Frankenstein is telling robert walton later in life mm -hmm. what he did then so he mm -hmm. so even at this point frankenstein is being reflective about who he was at this time earlier time when he was making the monster um so i think so we have this sort of mixture of him narrating what happened as though he's in the moment but then he's looking back as a wiser um man at this point um true so that's help, helpful to think about, um, it, which again is why the story is just so complicated um, because narratively speaking, and now I forgot your question. Because <laughs> so I'll let Josh <laughs> So do you remember the question, Josh? Yeah, the, the question was... Um, no, I don't remember it. <laughs> he lied. He, he lied. He lied. Yeah. Josh lied. I'm, a, I'm an unreliable like, critic. He was lying to himself. And then when he tried to say it out loud, he realized he was lying to himself. I claimed that Victor Frankenstein doesn't know himself. And David said, oh, right. but what about this passage that okay. demonstrates oh. his? Yes. That maybe he does. No, he didn't. He didn't and, but he does. And then Karen actually now. answered the question perfectly, but then <laughs> forgot what the question was, even though the answer was perfect. So um, about this passage in, in chapter three, there is kind of a, and this is a, a really remarkable thing for a, for a young woman to realize, but what Victor does 
as a man is he reflects on the folly of his own youth in the way that old men do. Because what what happens to Victor when he goes to college is what happens to a lot of young men when they go to college. He completely loses himself. He doesn't contact his father. He stays up all night. And there's an interesting parallel between Victor's interest in science and the average libertine's interest in, in sex when it comes to college. Because what Victor does is he reduces his interest in human beings to human bodies. Uh, the soul is not interesting to him. He's only interested in bodies, in corpses. And in the same way, the, you know, the frat boy who has a hundred notches on his bedpost is not interested in human souls. He's only interested in human bodies. And so there's this kind of revelry in the body divorced from the soul that's happening late at night, and he's not telling his parents about any of it or his father about any of it. And, and the whole of chapter three just seems uh, analogous to a, a great many young men's college experiences that they then, you know, 15 years later, they look back on and they think, God, I was just totally lost then. I, I could not live that life again. Um, it was really wild. Uh, I lost myself for a time. I, I didn't know who I was. I was staying up all night. I wasn't living any, living any sort of according to any sort of convention or standard. And, and that's just, that's just Victor. Well, what you're saying here is so interesting in the context of this with the, in light of this passage, because he says, I pursued nature to her hiding places. Um, and then he says, my limbs now tremble and my eyes swim with the remembrance, but then a rest, a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seem to have lost all soul or sensation, but for this one pursuit, it was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness. So soon as the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. And then a little bit later, he says, to the, you're talking about the soullessness of it. He says, the summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul in one pursuit. So it's so interesting that he has lost his sense of the value of human souls but then he says here that he was, he was engaged heart and soul in one pursuit. So even if we say, well, that's, you know, colloquialism that she's, you know, appropriating here, the, the use of it is fascinating. And then again, to your point, it says, it was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest or the vines yield a more luxurious vintage, but my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. Um, and, the, you know, I love the kind of objective correlative, so to speak, the, the, the mirror that that offers to what you're saying about how he views human souls. Not only does he not view people, uh, he only views them as bodies and he is sort of disconnected from the soullessness of people. You know, he doesn't even get at the things that are like at the soul of nature, you know, the, something like, you know, vines that are producing luxurious vintages. I wonder what year this was. Um, what, what, what is... Uh, what's the wine of the region there Wait, where are they again he's in ingolstadt in, in germany, germany. So what's the the riesling of 18 <laughs> 18 or whatever um and then you know he, he 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 was too blind to all these things so it wasn't even just the people it was you know the, the entire universe there's a certain there's a, and that there's a certain um I read that and at first you just kind of read it and you think, well, that he's just, he's re looking back at himself in a very self-aware way, as, as Karen said, but there's also, that's also a, like dark, you know, a dark kind of horrifying perspective of the world. That sort of single-minded and in a way we sort of think of that single-mindedness as, as a virtue, but there's a darkness at the core of what's going on here. Yeah. Karen, go ahead. Yeah. Just one small line that, um, 
that's it would be easy to escape our notice on this point and this is uh again i'm still back on where is this uh about a page before that passage you read Mm-hmm. No, I don't know where you read. Yeah, so still in chapter three, mm-hmm. where he says these thoughts supported my spirits. Um, again, he's describing the process of of creation here, and he says, um, "Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay?" He tortures living animals in order to figure this out, which of course was an actual thing um, beginning in the enlightenment where um, it, where experimenters would actually um, experiment on living animals, um, which we still do today. Um, so so no, no, no shade on them. They're no worse than we are. Um, but they, the, but there were literally because of the sort of metaphor of the machine that overtook the enlightenment, um, there were experimenters and scientists who who literally um, said that you know when they tortured a dog and it cried, um, it was just it was akin to the the squeaking of a machine. I mean, they they actually couldn't they actually told themselves that those kinds of cries of pain were just the squeakings of the machine. And so, you know, so this was part of, this had been going on for over a century, this kind of, and they would hold these experiments in public, the public would come and watch. Um, And so this seems to be, again, it's just kind of a throwaway line, um, but it's something that uh, Shelley during her time and her culture would have been very aware of is the way animals were experimented on um, in public and, you know, as shows and also just in the name of progress. There's that line a little before that, I think, where it says, learn from me how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. And like that phrase I was thinking about, learn from me, if not by precepts, at least by my example, but learn from me how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge. I was thinking about how he doesn't, He's not saying learn how dangerous is knowledge exactly. He's talking about, he said, learn how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge. And that, that seems to be, you know, what you're describing there seems to be um, an example of, of that concept. Josh, go ahead. Or Heidi, go ahead. You raised your hand. Go ahead. Nope, nope. It's okay. Okay. So that's the Prometheus myth that we see threaded through here. The idea of, of, of the, the forbidden knowledge, the knowledge that's forbidden from on high, and then man goes and takes it anyway, bringing on himself destruction. And, but I also want to point out, and I think this is important, there are those little nuggets in there of Frankenstein, as he calls it, moralizing, but it is still insufficient to the sins of Victor Frankenstein because at the time that he is doing this moralizing, he is relentlessly and obsessively pursuing this monster for the sake of vengeance to the point that he actually kills himself. So the idea of Frankenstein having somehow acquired this wisdom that transcends his life before him and redeeming it in some way remains a question at the end of the novel. And so this moralizing, I still think, is just further evidence that he does not truly achieve repentance or knowledge of his true motives or his true flaw, which is that obsessive pursuit to both create and then destroy 
with his own hands, the work of his hands, but never to redeem it or to mm. love it or to contribute to the world in any way. Mm. Uh, Josh, go ahead. Um, side comment by this point, but the, oh, okay. the chapter that we're passing through, chapter three, has numerous descriptions, well, chapter three and four, of Victor's own devolving health. And right. mm -hmm. uh, I, I think everybody who's scratched the surface of, of critical comments on the book has noted that a lot of vis Vic Victor's physical deformities and maladies are consistent with syphilis. Uh, and that he seems to have contracted a STD-like disease in the midst of these late-night pursuits of knowledge, which is also what makes uh, the passage of this, these beautiful seasons uh, worthless to him. Uh, he's, he's too physically um, unhealthy and unstable to go out and enjoy them. Mm. Yes, the conflation then of sexual knowledge and the overcoming and death, sex and death. Yeah are so connected in this novel. And, and that's what in many ways begs for multiple levels of interpretation for Victor and for many of the characters in this novel. Well, there's, you know, there's even just, this is just the surface irony of, you know, he says I had, I had uh, worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. And so there's just this surface you know, irony between trying to pursue life, but it costing you. And then in the end, his friend is the one that brings him back to life. And what is it? Chapter four, or uh, what is this? Um, Nothing but the unbounded and unremitting attentions of my friend could have restored me to life. And so he's being refilled with life there, but it didn't take, you know, it was a very different sort of work that Clairval had to, you know, you put forth, had to engage in, to bring him back to life. And, you know, there's a little, too little too late in the realization of that for, for Frankenstein. Josh, you, you going to say something? No, I'll pass. Okay. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about is the, the notion of the theme of creation in general. You're all writers. And there was this line that really stood out to me where it's in chapter five. It's in one of the letters that he, um, that, that Elizabeth writes to him. Okay. So let's see. At the very end of it, there's a paragraph, the very last paragraph of the letter. She says, I have written myself into good spirits, dear cousin. I cannot conclude without again anxiously inquiring concerning your health. Dear Victor, if you are not very ill, write yourself and make your father and all of us happy. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but this phrase, I have written myself into good spirits and then saying, write yourself, write yourself and make your father and all of us very happy. And this sort of, this idea that the, that writing and happiness are connected here. I mean, it it seems like a throwaway, perhaps, from Elizabeth, but that's that that concept also seems to be tied to this, the whole book's thinking of the the idea of creation itself, the act of creation. The you know, and so I was wondering is is part of what Frankenstein is after here? Is he after some sort of happiness? Is his pursuit of you know? Create, uh, giving life to an inanimate object and defeating death and all these sorts of things that he talks about is part of the deal that he is after some sort of happiness? Um, or, or is he simply after, you know, the sort of uh, um, the ability to be able to say, look what I've done or to, you know, prove the, the ultimate good of, of scientific progress? You, is this something you've ever thought about? Or am I reading too much into it? By taking that one passage and then, you know, just making too much of it. 
Um, yeah, well, I'll, I, I think one of the major, I think perhaps the major theme in this whole novel besides the creation theme is friendship and the need mm. for friendship. I mean, even more so than, than romantic love even, and sexual love, even though that, that's in here. It's really just friendship. Um, and again, that's reinforced by the form because the, all of these letters and journals, they're all, um, letters and, and conversations there. It's all dialogue with another person. Um, and so Elizabeth is writing to Victor and she's asking him to write to her. Um, and Victor is telling his story to Walton. Um, both of them are in search of friendship. The, the, Monster uh, is in search of of friendship um, throughout the whole thing, even more than he is a a, a partner. Um, and so, I think this particular kind of writing is is it's not just creative writing, but it's you know because they couldn't pick up the phone or or tweet one another. These letters are 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 dialogue, companionship, um, and so I think. I think this kind of writing reinforces that major theme of friendship. Mm. Companionship maybe is a better, you know, of, of any mm -hmm. kind. Mm. Yeah. Everybody in the novel is in constant search for relation to the other mm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And the lack of that is what is, it creates a sense of profound unhappiness. I mean, Aristotle would say the only thing we want is happiness. Everything we do is motivated by happiness, whether we know it or not. And I think that's certainly true for Victor Frankenstein. But because he's so profoundly disconnected and divided within himself, he doesn't know what he's looking for, right? Mm -hmm. What is he trying to create life? And as Josh points out, without a connect a, a connection with a, without a sexual creation of another self for the sake of love um there's and he just he just lost his mom like and and there that's huge the idea of the eve create the the eve is mother woman is lover woman is sister woman is cousin woman is friend woman is i mean there's so many layers there of of profound disorder within the soul of Victor Frankenstein that then for him to come along and try to create something, as Josh points out, for glory, for the sake of vainglory and vanity and an elevation of his own abilities, as well as a search to relate to something without risking it on a woman, I think is very deep within this novel. Um, and that goes, I think, to what Karen, what you said earlier about Mary Shelley herself. Like she's very present in this novel in a way that a lot of other um, novelists aren't present within their own creations, which goes to David's point, the multiple levels of creation. So there's, there's so many ways to contemplate. I'm not offering any answers as much as I'm saying that's why I think this novel is so brilliant because there is... Uh, there are rather so many um, points of reference in a novel that's constantly looking for relation mm -hmm. on multiple levels. And interest, you know, incest um, is mm -hmm. kind of that uh, that blurring of the self and other boundary, right? Um, Agree. Yeah. Yes. So that I, that's just a, a side note for me to think about. <laughs> so, so is is his disordered relationships his lack of understanding of 
what these relationships should look like. And then even his, you know, you know, this idea that the pursuit of friendship and companionship is at the heart of the novel. Is that part of why the, the creature that he turns out ultimately becomes a monster? Because it talks about how he's, you know, what, what does it say? Um, what does he say? His intention was to make it a giant, um, a gigantic mm-hmm. st- Gigantic structure like a statue or something like that. I kept thinking it was, you know, he sounded like he wanted, what he really wanted to do was make a sculpture um, and then somehow breathe life into it. Or a, mo- a monument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like a Citizen Kane or something. Um, but Robert E. Lee. Ooh. <laughs> Topical. <laughs> Josh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll make a, maybe a, um, put a caveat on, on a claim that was made uh, a few minutes ago. There is, there is one character in this book who I don't think is looking for friendship, and that's Alphonse Frankenstein. And I think that mm. Alphonse's uh, lack of desire for friendship ultimately is passed on to his son. So, I mean, consider a few things about Alphonse. Um, first of all, he's that's wealthy enough to have a house in Geneva, but he likes to live, uh, he likes to live out in the Bell Reef by the lake. He likes to live uh, more than five miles away from the citizens of Geneva. He prefers a life that is um, cut off and sequestered from other people who might ask him difficult questions about the um, odd relationship between he and his wife, who's basically a child compared to him. Uh, Alphonse retires from public life uh, early in the novel. And uh, by the time Victor comes back to Geneva, having been gone to Ingolstadt, he's been gone for six years and his father hasn't visited once. And his father's not busy with anything. Uh, His father uh, sends some letters. Victor doesn't respond. Henry's the first person to show up in Ingolstadt, sends word back to the Frankensteins that, that Victor is very ill and no one comes for two years. They don't hear anything from him. Alphonse has basically given up on his son at this point. His son is no longer cute, no longer seems like a fairy. Uh, There's no kind of romantic uh, attachment to the innocence of childhood anymore. And Victor's father will never ask him any difficult questions about what he was doing in the six years that he was gone. Um, Henry shows up, finds Victor uh, on the the point of madness and death. There's no difficult conversations there. Um, Everyone wants to let everyone else just languish in their private problems and they're too uh, cowardly to pry into them and ask any sort of difficult confrontational questions because then they'd have to start taking responsibility for other people's problems. So Victor leaves probably uh, around the age of 18. No one sees him again until he's 24. Um, and his, and his father has only enough interest to write him letters. Victor is not interested in other people. I don't think any more than his father is. Uh, His father despises mankind. Victor ultimately despises mankind. And he's only willing to have friendships where people won't pry into his business so that he can maintain this secret second life. And then it takes him being no longer conscious for for Clairvaux to kind of bust in and actually be a friend. Yeah. So, so Karen, are you... Do you disagree with that? Or would you say that you're what no, you're saying? No, I, I think I think that's very insightful. And I can't, you know, I won't be able to locate it right now, but but it is, I think in the previous chapters, um, Clairval is presented as kind of a um 
and we'll, 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 we'll have to bring this up later uh, as well, but a doppelganger to Frankenstein, right? He's kind mm-hmm. of a shadow or, or whatever. He's not really, and I can't remember how it's put, but I remember thinking that um, Clairval isn't so much his own person, his own person as much as he is a, you know, sidekick and um, reflection of, of Frankenstein, at least in terms of Frankenstein's value of him. So you talk about mirrors and reflections. Why is uh, why doesn't Frankenstein try to make his monster more of a reflection of himself? I mean, maybe he does in the end succeed at that, but it, there's no talk of you know he doesn't. You you talk about the idea of having a ch- a child that you but the child mm-hmm. that you don't you have pure response responsibility for or get credit for or whatever. Um, usually, people want to blame their spouse for the bad things in their child, but not take responsibility for them. But, but so he, but when you have a child, that child takes on some characteristics of you. And so there's this, you sometimes it's like looking at yourself, right? Um, Or you look at your parents and you see yourself in them or whatever it is, but he doesn't seem to be trying to make a creature in his own image. Although perhaps whether he he actually does is a different question. Am am I wrong in that? Does it, or do you think that he does try to do that? And so, in what he in trying to make a monument, that's what he is trying to do. I mean, I think I think he does make a creature in his own image, whether he realizes it or yes. not. I mean, he yeah. Um, but he doesn't. You're exactly right. He doesn't. He's he is so obsessed with his own knowledge. And his own ability to bring such a creature in life. You're, the, I really like the word monument. Um, he 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 didn't think about the fact. He doesn't. It doesn't ever seem to consider. He doesn't ever seem to consider that in putting life into these in, into this sewn together ugly creation that he's he's making a person. Mm. There's personhood connected with life. And that doesn't seem to, con- he doesn't seem to consider that at all, which goes to Josh's point that his, uh, it, that he's mimicking or imitating his father and in, in the inability then to, or the dislike, the actual animosity towards personhood in his life. He, he, he pushes away and doesn't know anybody. Even Elizabeth, his espoused wife, um, is probably, I think, maybe the best example of this, um, that he doesn't know her at all um, or seem to desire her until a very specific moment, which is really creepy. And so there's um, there's so much there about the, the disconnect and the division within him that is... Um, manifested in the creation of the monster whose personhood he never takes into account. And then when the personhood is forced upon him, he rejects it. And that's coming up next. Hmm. Sorry. Spoiler. I was thinking about how he keeps describing the monster as this demonical creature. And that's the word that keeps going over and over. And at first I kind of took it for granted. Like, yeah, he's this monster that's, you know, he is Frankenstein, at least through this section, assumes is out for blood. And then immediately... He's afraid of it. And then immediately he assumes that the monster uh, killed the boy. But, but you're right. He, he just jumps right to that and doesn't, there's no, he doesn't assume first or, or even consider that there's a, there's a humanity or a soul at the core of the, the creature. Josh? He doesn't consider the, the child's personhood because the child really mm-hmm. is just an obstruction to what he wants most, which is autonomy. 
and, and that's always the way with children. I mean, I have, uh, I have two children. I love them very much, but any honest parent will admit that your autonomy and, and discretionary time begins to quickly fall away as soon as you have children. Right. And, and so at the moment that the child comes to life for Victor, he realizes that his life is no longer his own. And that's terrifying to him because he wants perfect control over everything that happens to him. He wants perfect yes. control even over his own child. And so there, <laughs> there we reach this kind of odd paradox, um, or, or maybe it's a catch-22, that if he had created the child with a mother, he could have just dumped the child off on the mother. But having no mother to dump the child off on, he has to abandon the child, which is just kind of comical in a pathetic sort of way. Uh, he was never interested in taking care of another person. He was only interested in the creation of a person. Um, but but a, he knows that a child will uh, inhibit him and limit him. Um, and a child will also pry into his life. Uh, and that's all. Uh, that all makes the child a threat. Um, the child will take away from him what he wants most, which is autonomy. And so the very existence of the child is demoniacal, even before it speaks a single word. You know that moment where he has the dream, the creepy dream about Elizabeth, and then what's at the foot of the bed when he wakes up? Yeah. I was thinking so much about how, on the surface, all of this seems like such a threat, right? Like, you can kind of understand the way he tells it, that it's a threat. But also, I kept thinking about how that's what children do. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've woken up, and one of my children, when they were really little, who was scared in the night or whatever... Was, I woke up and they were standing there right next, you know, in this, in a way that if I want to interpret it that way is really creepy, <laughs> but also they just really, they were just asking for some affection or some comfort or they needed to go to the bathroom or <laughs> whatever it was. Um, right. But he immediately interprets this, 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 the monster standing there as this threat and he runs away. Um, yeah. He just hightails it out of there. And next thing you know, he's assuming that the monster has killed a boy. Um, and, there's a there's a that's a tragic uh tragic first interpretation you know it's just the, the immediate thing that he turns to go ahead Heidi well and it's brilliant in a literary sense and a craft sense on Mary Shelley's part right because she's putting this there's there's the conflation of the conflation of the wife and the mother and and death and sex again and then the first sight that that Frankenstein sees when he opens his eyes is the monster that he's created out of all of those undealt with very deep distortions within his soul. And then his immediate response to that is to reject it. Mm. Is to I just to divide it from himself, which is what he's doing inside and he's just manifesting that on the outside. I find it very compelling that the first murder committed by the monster is the child. Right? Because the monster is, as, as Josh keeps referring to it, the, chi- Frank, the child of Frankenstein's disorder. And then the, the potential innocence, the next generation that's actually growing up happy, healthy, like laughing, running around outside, connected to nature, all of the idealized things, that's the first thing that the monster murders and kills. I think that's very, very significant to the novel. I think Heidi's right, and I think Mary Shelley gets double usage out of William's death, Mm -hmm. Um, because the monster can only understand William as an innocent child. At the same time, in Elizabeth's letter describing William, even at a young age, 
he's presented as a sexually unorthodox child who already has multiple wives. And it's said in a sort of joking sort of Good manner. Good point. That's but a great point. I must say also a few words to you, my dear cousin of little darling William. I wish you could see him. When he smiles, two little dimples appear on each cheek. He already has one or two little wives. But Louisa Byron is his favorite. Uh, there, there seems to be no orthodox sexual relationship in this entire book, down to the children who are already <laughs> polygamous. That's great, Josh. Uh, and That's so, really good. And so little William the polygamist is, is the first <laughs> to die. And yet th- there's already the hint that the child has given over to the perversity of his father uh, in the way that he's described. She could have said... He already has two little girlfriends, two little friends, but she says wives just to make it um, uh, unavoidably perverse, I suppose. Right. No matter how. I agree. You're totally right. And because Alphonse Frankenstein has, I think, a very disordered relationship with Elizabeth. As you point out, Victor's gone for six years. And who is his surrogate wife at the time? Uh, Who's talking about the future of the children? What are we going to do with Ernest? Right. And and so there's there's so many incestuous connections within these relationships that's manifested in the monster. Yeah. But the question that we're about that we're about to address in the novel is: Could the monster be actually redemptive? Is there a potential for that? Uh, and and that becomes very complicated. So what you're saying is at the heart of everything, Alphonse is really the problem. I've never <laughs> considered that interpretation, but Josh has me almost convinced. I I. I've always noticed Victor Frankenstein's disordered relationships with the women in the novel far more than with Alphonse, but you're probably because I'm a woman, right? And so that's what I'm paying attention to naturally is not the father-son dynamic, which is profoundly formative, but it's not one I've had experienced. And so, I, but I, I'm grateful for Josh's interpretation of that. It adds a whole other layer of tangled webs that have been woven. <laughs> Can we talk before we go? We're at an hour and 10 minutes, um, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, but can we talk about Justine a little bit? I feel like we can't. We got to at least address her uh, her experience because she gets she gets uh, tangled up in the web. <laughs> um, and she, uh, you know, she's put on trial and, and, and he says that as soon as he heard what happened, well, something to that effect, he knows exactly who who did it. He says something like, the minute... This is really wild sentence, actually. Um, this is gonna me looking for this is gonna be just super scintillating podcasting. Okay, here we go. No sooner did the idea cross my imagination than I became convinced of its of its truth. My teeth chattered, and I was forced to lean against a tree for support. The figure passed me quickly, and I lost it in the gloom. The mere presence of the idea was an irresistible proof of the fact. I thought of pursuing the devil, but it would have been in vain. For another flash discovered him to discovered him to me hanging among the rocks of the nearly perpendicular ascent of Mount uh, Salieve. He soon reached the summit and disappeared. This idea of no sooner had the idea crossed my imagination than I became convinced of its truth. And then also the mere presence of its idea was an irresistible proof of the fact. So there's a sort of, it seems like that, that the way he arrives at truth there runs counter to so much of his whole reason for being you know as as a scientist so then that suggests to me that we have to question his 
whether he knows what he's talking about. Um, so do, are we, are we meant to assume, do you think that, um, Justine, Justine, so to speak, is telling the truth because the one character who does try to stand up for another person, uh, you know, you were talking earlier, Josh, about how no one likes to, you know, actually confront anyone. The one person who does confront people on behalf of somebody else is Elizabeth in the, during the trial when she stands up and, and says, defends Justine. Um, and so the question of whether Justine is actually guilty or innocent uh, seems like one worth worth discussing a little bit. Not that we need to resolve the question now because there's plenty of book left to go. But what do you what do you think about this? And and what do you think about the way that Frankenstein comes to his conclusion about the fact that Justine is innocent? Patty, you're muted. If you were going to say something, who were you going to say you wanted someone else to answer? I was going to say it? I want to hear from Karen. We haven't heard oh, her. I've, I've been. Babbling on about psychological things. I want to hear Karen's thoughts on this. Well, I don't I don't know if I have a, a lot to say about that. I mean, I think I think really, I mean, we have Victor is a romantic more than he is a scientist, but that's because Shelley was a romantic more than she was a scientist. So I think we see this, but again, this is one of the great tensions of the novel. The novel is filled with so many tensions um, between competing worldviews and ideas, which is why it, it's it's so great. Uh, the thing that just jumps out to me when you were referring to this passage and, and Justine is, you know, uh, Victor knows who did it, but he doesn't speak up, does he? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he's just he's a he's a scoundrel. <laughs> so and is, yeah, yeah. Is he is he a, a scoundrel? Is an interesting word. I think that's actually a good word. Is it that he is a coward, or is it that he? Well, there's a fine distinction here, but he's actually a bad guy. You said scoundrel. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe that that maybe his uh, scoundrelness is you know, coincides with its cowardice. But I was trying, I was, that's something I was trying to figure out. Is he, is he just a bad guy or is he afraid to speak up and because he thinks they're going to think he's crazy and the worst thing possible is to think that he's not, a, for people to think that he's not a genius. I think he's a scoundrel. Yeah, he's, cow- he's cowardly too, but he's a scoundrel. Hmm. And I think he's even more of a scoundrel in the 1831 edition than he is in hmm. the 1818 edition. And I, I'll just point out one of these, one of the discrepancies in the 1831 edition that I point out to my students and and make it, just a passing reference to the difference. When Victor comes home after six years in the 1831 edition, he immediately claims that he knows who the murderer is. He walks in and he tells his brother, I know who the murderer is. And no one asks him, who is it? It's bizarre. And it's unbelievable. I find ultimately, I find it unbelievable that Victor actually claims that he knows who the murderer is. That detail was added. So in the 1818 edition, when he comes home, when he's back in, when he's back in his in his father's house, he never claims to know who the murderer is. After mulling over the novel for 13 years, Mary Shelley decides to for for Victor to claim that he tried to prevent the death of Justine by claiming to know who the murderer was. But in the 1831 edition, when he claims to know who the murderer is, all the details of the story fall apart because no one says, oh, who is it? Mm. No one says it. And it's just unbelievable in the end that all these people who are mourning the, uh, the accusation of murder of their friend suddenly hear that it's, it's not her. And no one even bothers to say, oh, who is it? Who do you think it is? 
it's the first thing that Victor says after six years that he's gone. I know who the murderer is. It's just unbelievable. But it's a it's a fascinating, unbelievable detail that's added in the later edition. And it seems that in the course of those 13 years, Mary Shelley realized that Victor's self-justification would lead to him creating these little accounts in his story where he tries to prevent bad things from happening. Uh as if he's telling the guy who's writing the letters and saying, no, 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 I said something. Yeah, I, I, I tried my <laughs> I, best. I tried, yeah. Right, I made concerned sounds whenever, uh, whenever people were <laughs> accused of crimes that I had committed, but no one would listen to me. No one would follow up with me. It's just not plausible. <laughs> yeah, can I make a, a closing remark about, yeah, again, kind of please. going back to the 1818 edition and, um, and, 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 and both really, uh, but... Um, so what I want to say about this, especially to to the readers um, who might be reading this for the first time, and and it's really what I think about Frankenstein anyway. So Frankenstein is the novel is not, you know, it's not a Renaissance painting. It's it's you know it's like a um, it's it's I don't even now now I can't uh, you know it, it's it's uh, who is the who is the Southern painter uh, who who his paintings were really rough and vibrant and spiritual. I can't even think of, you don't know who I'm talking. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm not prepared for this metaphor. But this, is a, <laughs> this, is, this is a rough novel of genius. So I want to encourage readers to, to, to not be, to, when they see the unevenness or the inconsistencies or, you know, the, the some moments of bad writing, like the uh, opening of chapter for it was on a dreary night of November. Um, you know, this is this is a novel by a young woman, uh, nineteen, I think, eighteen when she when she wrote this. Uh, it's an early work. It, it is a work of genius, but it's not a work of perfection. It's not I polished polished um and so i just want to encourage readers to understand that and accept it on those terms and and to to not be bothered by those you know, certainly note them but those moments of unevenness or inconsistency or or unbelievability or 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 hackneyed phrases um but that's part of what makes this work so great it's just a it's just a rough work of early genius mm. well and also like some of those things become colloquialisms over time and it may have been less of a cliche at the yeah, time than right. it is now and the, edit, the whole editorial process was a little different than as we know reading Dostoevsky right. um, uh, Hi, did you want to offer, offer any anything else or Josh were you going to respond to that okay okay Heidi go ahead um, I think that the Justine inter, interlude it almost feels like an interlude but it should be more of a climax and I, and I think that that's there's there's this kind of increasing tone of dissonance within this novel. The question of whether he's a coward, um, like what he does here is almost too villainous to take in in a first reading, right? Like you just kind of because you you want to find out what happens with the monster, um, but this particular part with Justine is this is where he goes from, um, I think relatively sympathetic and flawed um, to just depths of villainy, to watch this young woman die and his 
Beyonce grieve so deeply and go almost beyond her own sanity in trying to help her friend and for Victor to say nothing is, it's, it's a disgusting thing to do. And there's absolutely no justification. And he barely tries to justify it. He's so lost. He doesn't even, he barely, it's almost like he doesn't even realize this is just one more thing that happened uh, in the timeline of events to him. Um, So you're saying he's a scoundrel? (laughs) He is definitely a scoundrel, worse than a scoundrel. Like this is... He's a monster. This is such a horrible thing to do. He's a monster. (laughs) Um, And this... I think this when I've when I've read this with other people, I feel like this is in some some for some people this is the point that the novel kind of derails because it's such a terrible thing to do and it almost gets skated over to like move on to the next scene. Um, so this is this does have this gothic element of like over the top parts of the story, as you pointed out, Karen. Um, that that but. Hang in there because the emphasis on on the monster really is the heart of the story, and that's what we're getting to. Josh, you unmuted yourself, and thus I will assume that you want to speak. Yeah, I was going to comment on on the Justine angle. Um, e. Michael Jones, in an essay on the on the book, points out that uh, Justine is the name of a pornographic novel by the Marquis mm-hmm. de Sade that uh, Mary and Percy read together. They owned a, a black market copy of it and read it together, I believe, on their first trip um, through the continent, on their first backpacking trip. And uh, Jones comments that in reading Justine by the Marquis de Sade, Mary Shelley saw what, um, what the future of women looked like in this brave, new, enlightened world. Um, post-marriage, post-vows, post-oaths, post-religion. Uh, and it's intriguing that she borrows the name of Justine for this character who's just so deplorably treated, um, not only by... Uh, it, I think Mary Shelley takes a few digs at religion in this section. She does suggest that a Catholic woman can't get a fair trial in a Calvinist town. Yeah. And, and there's a few similar comments made there that are that are kind of echoed again at the center of the novel when a Muslim guy can't get a fair trial in a Christian city. And, and she seems a bit skeptical of, of, of justice in that way. Um, but also that, that Justine is this entirely innocent girl um, who's pushed around by the world uh, and finally killed, um, both through the negligence of society and the specific malice and cowardice of a, of a man who ought to take responsibility mm. for her. Hmm. Do we? Do you want to add anything else, any Karen? That's a delightfully dark note to end on. <laughs> I was, that's exactly what crossed my head. That seems like we should we should we should end there. So, um, thanks to all three of you for for joining me again, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, digging ever deeper into the darkness <laughs> over the next few weeks. So, thank you. There's thank you no for, end. Thank you. Well, there is an end eventually. Thank it's not you. that long of a book. We're not reading Common Punishment. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got another dig into um, Dostoevsky there. Now, um, no, that's how you really feel yeah, about those no, long I'm, novels. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, next week, we will uh, read the next, uh, I think, four chapters. Uh, and as we do that, what would you recommend that readers 
be paying attention to or, or looking for, or what questions would you be asking as you're, uh, you know, diving in, especially for people who might be the first or a second read. Heidi, do you have something in mind first? Go around the, go around the room and then we'll close it out for the day. It's really simple. And I'm just going to repeat myself. We're about to meet the monster. Um, and this is you, I mean, you just said there is an end to the novel. That is true. It is a short novel, but it is deep. Like there's, oh man, it's just so good. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, but so just I look mean, for ask, the goodness. Is that the question is, who is the monster? And it's a complicated question uh, with many, many answers to it. But that I think is a a good guide to the next four chapters or a good entry point is a better way of saying it. Karen? Yeah, this isn't a big thing, but it is a big thing, I guess. We haven't talked about much <laughs> is um, pay attention to the way Shelley uses nature, um, the natural setting and the way that nature reflects, you know, events and internal and external. Um, it's not just flowery description. I mean, sometimes it is, but uh, she was a romantic after all. But it's it's more than that. And so don't gloss over those passages, but pay attention to the role that nature plays. Hmm. Josh? Over the next few chapters, we're going to see a, a great presentation of uh, autodidacticism. Uh, mm -hmm. The monster educates itself alone entirely. And uh, mm -hmm. Shelley has a lot of interesting things to say about what education is in the way that the monster mm -hmm. educates himself. Thank you. For I have one more thing. <laughs> okay. I have one more thing. And that's um, uh, the pay attention to the monster's use of language. All right. Well, thank you to, to all three of you, as I said, and thank you to everyone who's been listening. If you want to join the conversation, don't forget you can go over to Facebook and uh, join the Close Reads conversation group over there. Just search Close Reads in the bar and you can find it and join the group if you haven't done so. And uh, over on Instagram, we're at Close Reads Podcast and the newsletter is closereads.substack.com. So there are many ways to get in touch. If you want to email us directly, it's closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, do any of you want to pitch anything? Anything you want to, you want to, Josh, you've got the book coming out. You got your book over on Amazon. Anything else you want to, you want to mention? Um, no, I don't think so. I appreciate it. Listen to Proverbial, everyone. Yeah. Josh has a, Josh has his very own podcast, uh, in which he reflects on various proverbs. I've I keep reading, uh, finding things that could pass as proverbs in this book and think Josh could have a field day with that on the, on the podcast. Karen, what about you? Yep. I'm just immersed in writing. So, uh, just, yeah, nothing nothing to promote right now. Buy the annotated versions of Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness. There you go. <laughs> and uh, Heidi, what about you? Nothing. Just buy the 30 Poems Project. That okay. goes for me and David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. All right, well, uh, for Karen Swallow-Pryor, for Joshua Gibbs, and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening, and until next week, happy reading. Happy reading.